Welcome to Super Agent Podcast. This podcast strives to promote healthy aging and empathize caregiver voices while raising awareness about dementia. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Fat Sisi. Today, I am speaking with Dr. Nathaniel Chin. Dr. Chin is an associate professor in the Division of Geriatrics and Gerontology. Dr. Chin receives his undergraduate and medical degrees from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He then went on to University of California, Santiago for his internal medicine residency. After completing his residency, he spent the next two years working as a hospitalist for Kaiser Permanente before returning to Wisconsin in 2015 to help his mother provide care for his father who had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. He completed his geriatric fellowship in 2016 and spent another year in a dementia research fellowship within geriatrics. He was then hired as an associate professor. Dr. Chin sees patient in the UW Memory Clinic, and in addition to providing diagnosis, he focused on palliative care in chronic disease management. In addition to his clinical and research work, he is the medical director of Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Studies and the Wisconsin Registry for Alzheimer's Prevention Studies, the co-leader of the ADRC Clinical Core, as well as associate director of the Geriatrics Memory Clinic at UW Health. He also served on the board of the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Association and the Alzheimer's Foundation of America. Dr. Chin is a co-investigator of five National Institute of Health grants, with one of them focused on biomarker disclosure. He presents frequently on topics of Alzheimer's disease and geriatrics, and in the last three years, has given over 55 presentations, local, regional, and national conferences. He has created over 100 podcasts on Alzheimer's disease research and caregiving topics under his podcast called Dementia Matter. And by the way, it's my absolute favorite podcast that I listen to every time I'm out on the street to work out, to do my workouts. So Thank you for that. And you are very, very welcome to the Super Agent Podcast. I look forward to our discussion today. Well, thank you, Fatu, for having me. And it's funny that you say that about my podcast. I greatly enjoy listening to this podcast. So it's an honor to be on here and be one of the guests on the Super Aging Podcast. Well, thank you. The honor is all mine as well. So let's dive into this, um, Dr. Chin. What does Super Agent mean to you? Yeah, super aging, it's such a great phrase. To me, that means living with high quality of life, great well-being, and a great sense of purpose. Uh, super aging is, it, it can have disease while having super aging. It can have tragedy and grief, but it really is a frame of mind and how we view our day uh, and our lives. You know, I'm glad to hear you said that because when I think of super aging, I mean, I really like the fact that you mentioned that even with disease, you can have those high quality of life. Uh, it's the frame of mind where your thought process is, how you think about life, I guess. 
in a nutshell. So I, I really like how you said that. Can you tell us a little more about what went into the decision for you to pursue a career in care of older adults and in research into the aging process? Well, I would say if you had asked the undergrad medical school or even resident version of myself that I would become a geriatrician and then a geriatrician focused on um, people with living with cognitive impairment, I would have said that's just not true. I always thought I was going to be an infectious disease doctor. I did all of my training in microbiology, and I was drawn to the infectious disease group within medical school and residency. Uh, and it really was my father's diagnosis of mild stage dementia due to Alzheimer's disease during my between my second and third year of my residency in San Diego that really prompted me to reevaluate. What is it that I'm passionate about? What is it that brings meaning to me? And with that personal, and I felt like it was a personal assault on my identity, um, I wanted to do more in the field of Alzheimer's specifically. And so that created this shift in, in my plans and led to where I am today. That's great. But I mean, did you see any gap in medicine as far as like Alzheimer's specific focus? While you're doing this study, I mean, changing your focus from wanting to be an infectious disease doctor to a geriatric with a focus on Alzheimer's, did you see a specific gap there? Certainly. And now UW does an excellent job of kind of exposing us to some of what geriatrics is during medical school. And so I actually got to meet Dr. Sanjay Astana, who's the head of our group, as a third year medical student. So even at that point, I had seen that the approach to someone who's older, the different types of aging physiology that differs. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, at that point, I was interested in it. And I and I, I sort of saw it as a, well, how does infection change that? So I still appreciated the geriatric approach, but I never thought that was going to be my, my focus. And then certainly after my dad's diagnosis, I saw how we uh, approach people with dementia in a hospital and in clinics, and so lots of gaps in our education, in our counseling, even in, in just how we talk about it, leading to unnecessary stigma and, and suffering on behalf of the patient or their family members. Yeah, yeah, you you mentioned stigma. That's another big one um, with Alzheimer's. But to help our people who are listening who may not be as familiar with Alzheimer's disease or Alzheimer's dementia, can you give us a basic overview of what's happening in the brain when someone develops Alzheimer's? Yes. So the first thing I would say, which I think is really important, is that Alzheimer's disease is not the same thing as dementia. And that's been discussed on this podcast before. right? So so dementia is really just the manifestation of the changes in the brain. And we're just using that as a description term. Alzheimer's disease is the actual pathology, the brain changing process that's occurring. And right now, the most most people, most scientists and 
um, healthcare providers do believe it's due uh, at least to two main proteins. The first one that develops is called amyloid or beta amyloid. Uh, that's not supposed to be forming these clumps outside of brain cells. And then something happens along with the amyloid that then leads to another second protein called tau or tau tangles. And that forms inside a brain cell. And then enough tau happens and the brain cells die. And when you have dead brain cells, you no longer have communication and then you start having symptoms. Mm. I want to be careful because it's a framework, meaning that's not the whole solution here. There's many different variations of what we think of as Alzheimer's disease, many different potential causes, be it inflammation, metabolic disruption, potentially infections. But we do believe the actual uh, kind of bedrock to this is amyloid, tau, and then brain cells dying. Okay. All right. So those are the main major ones that we are now focused on as far as the cause for Alzheimer's, although there are other things that may potentially give you symptoms or may cause the disease, but these are the two major stuff. Exactly. These are at least the things we identify in people who have had Alzheimer's disease. Wonderful. Thank you for that explanation. Recently, there has been a major development in the available treatments for Alzheimer's, and we will discuss this in a moment. First, I want to get your opinion on what has been the traditional avenue for treatment and care for a loved one with Alzheimer's. I would say it's broken down into two main approaches. The first one is medications, and these medications have been around since the late 1990s, early 2000s, and mm-hmm. um, they're acetylcholinesterase inhibitors, and that means that's just a fancy word for a drug that blocks the natural breakdown of a signal in your brain. And that signal is meant to help you with memory. So it's choline. The way you and I would think of dopamine as that reward signal. Well, choline is sort of a memory uh, attention signal. And the drug kind of slows the natural breakdown of that. So it's around longer. That is not a cure. That does not address the underlying pathology of Alzheimer's or even Parkinson's and Lewy body disease. But potentially it could help Uh, with symptoms or slow, the idea of being slow, the progression of symptoms. Mm -hmm. The other medication is called um, memantine, and that deals, that's a very complicated one, but that deals with the the membrane health of a brain cell. So neither of those are cures or stop progression, but that's something that I do think can have meaning for people. And then the second approach is really about strengthening the support of an individual as well as the health of the individual. So addressing risk factors such as high blood pressure and cholesterol and sleep, Uh, but then also getting a person connected to the community, keeping them uh, socially active, keeping their brains stimulated and supporting, and of course this podcast being one of it, and supporting the family members because family members are gonna be the champions of that person living with change. uh, And they're gonna be the ones helping facilitate this and keep the person motivated. Wonderful, that is so true. Family members are really crucial members in this process of providing care and support for individuals with Alzheimer's disease or any any other disease for that matter. As you have seen um, and experienced elder care from both sides as a 
fellow trained academic geriatrician and as a son of who navigated your own dad's journey with Alzheimer's disease. What does this, each of these experiences bring to the way you provide and advocate for care of patients and those within the community? Yeah, that, so I would say my experience with my father really has greatly influenced how I view uh, providing care. And, and I would say one of the key areas in that is transparency and what I think is happening. And so okay. as a family member, you're constantly struggling with what is this? Is this is this dementia? Is this mild cognitive impairment? Is this Alzheimer's disease? Is this Lewy body disease? There's so many terms. It's so confusing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so knowing that confusion causes unnecessary suffering in, in, in my clinical approach, I'm very upfront with people about the syndrome, about what I think is causing it, and then really about what the stage is. Because another issue is the lingering question of, is, are things changing right in front of me? What's next? What's going to happen? And that's an appropriate response. People need to know uh -huh. what the future holds. And so I believe being able to provide that education and then arguably some training for people living with dementia as well as the family can help reduce the stress of things that may come uh, so that you can avoid crisis moments and, right. and have a perspective where you can appreciate today, knowing that tomorrow is going to come no matter what. That is true. And I think uh, shaping their expectation, broadening their understanding of what is happening and what's coming next, potentially, in a way, it's a game changer because a lot of people just don't know. And not, that knowing is in itself is confusing and frustrating all at the same time. And we've seen that in, you know, both you and myself, who's in elder care, have seen the frustration in people not understanding uh, what's going on and what to expect as far as the disease goes. So now recently, a new drug, aducanumab or aldoham, has been approved for use among those diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. Can you describe how this drug helps the, to treat the disease? Yeah, so uh, first a clarification that it is FDA approved. However, it has not gone through Medicare and CMS, which is the payer of of approved medications. And so there's still, even though it's approved, there are, there are not that many places that are actually currently giving this medication in an infusion center. I think that's because we're waiting to see what Medicare actually thinks of it. There are two separate bodies. And so it went through the first one, but it still needs to go through the second. Okay. Um, I would say to you then, it's a monoclonal antibody. So what does that mean? Well, they, they looked at healthy older adults and they're able to select for a specific antibody, meaning your, your body's own um, protein that can fight off infections or something that's considered foreign. And they, they purified it, they cleaned it up. And what you do is you actually inject that into a person's bloodstream. It goes as it's supposed to into the brain. So it goes through our blood brain barrier and mm -hmm. it attaches to that amyloid protein. So that's that first protein of Alzheimer's disease. Okay. It attaches there and it stimulates your own body's immune response to say, this is a foreign product. Let's come and attack it and clear it. And that's exactly what happens. Your body fights, it kind of breaks down this protein and then clears it out of the body. 
And that has been shown to be effective with aducanumab, that this, they show scans of people before the drug and there's amyloid present, and then they give the drug. And I think it's at least about a year later, the scans are back to almost what would it be like if they never had amyloid. So that, that I don't, you know, there's a lot of debate about this drug that no one is really debating because it's been, it's pretty objective. The way you can see the protein is gone. So it's, it's been proven that that amyloid protein has been removed from the brain. And yes. from our previous communication or discussion, amyloid and tau are the two protein that causes Alzheimer's. And this aducanumab is proven to remove amyloid from the brain. Correct. And you're being very good about be, about the next step, which is that it has not been proven to actually affect clinical symptoms yet, meaning okay. what a person yeah. actually experiences. Yes, yes. And, and that's where the debate is. Does removing amyloid actually lead to people having resolution of their memory or thinking symptoms or improvement in their daily function? Okay. And that, that is not as clear. Great. Thank you for that explanation. How many phases of trial has been done for this aducanumab? There have been, well, there, I mean, there's phase one through phase three, and there were a couple of phase ones and twos, and then there were two main phase three studies, which have to happen. There's, these are randomized clinical trials uh, that are controlled. And one of those phase threes showed a potential benefit of the medication and the other did not. And in general, for the FDA to approve a medication, you need two to show success. And okay. so they were able, the, the company that ran the studies, they were able to select certain groups of people within each study and say, well, just these groups of people actually did benefit at a higher dose for a longer period of time but that's traditionally not how you how you define success. And okay. so the process has been heavily debated as well within the scientific community as to whether or not there should have been another uh, phase three study. Okay, that brings me to my next question is that this process has been called accelerated. So FDA accelerated the approval of this drug what is that supposed to mean? Because now you said they're supposed to have like two that shows some improvement, right? But they've done three. So my question is, the accelerated process, does that mean there should be next step into the trial phase? Or what, what does that mean? Help us understand what, what's the next thing. <laughs> It's not a novel process. So the accelerated approval really is saying we're in such a, real, a pivotal period where we need more than what we currently have. And it would take too long to have more studies that go for five years and then another three years of analysis that we need to do something faster that's still effective or at least shows a level of effectiveness. And so with this accelerated approval, they said that the amyloid protein could serve as a surrogate for actual Alzheimer's disease and, and improvement in Alzheimer's disease. So by removing the amyloid, the process said, okay, well, that shows success. Even though that we don't, we're not sure if that meets a clinical success, it certainly is a you know, physiological success or pathological success. But then there is a phase four study that is required now because of this okay. accelerated 
process, which means that those that do receive this drug can, and many of them will enroll in the phase four, where all of the clinicians and healthcare institutions will then send that data to the parent company who will then analyze if how effective is it in a real world population. Great. Thank you for that as well. And now with the previous explanation of aducanumab removing the amyloid in the brain, which is one of the causes of Alzheimer's, I wanted to ask if this removal of amyloid, but then we have tau also. So I, I guess my question is, would this big improvement, if we call, if we can call it, would make Alzheimer's somewhat not a terminal disease, but a chronic illness in some ways. What are your thoughts about that? Is it changing how we should look at Alzheimer's or we're not there yet? I think it is starting that conversation of can we actually stabilize Alzheimer's disease to the point where it is a chronic disease? Mm -hmm. And if we could identify people very early in the course of their disease, whether they have mild cognitive impairment, mild stage dementia, or even earlier than that, where they may not even have many symptoms at all, Mm -hmm. if we could keep them at that point and not have them progress, well, that would be a success. That would be because you can maintain a very good quality of life and activity and independence at all of those places. Mm -hmm. And so that would, in essence, be a chronic condition. Right. You just mentioned the tau protein, and there are studies looking now at ways that we can remove tau or prevent tau. Mm -hmm. And so likely it's going to be a combination of amyloid and tau and maybe some other factors that we haven't seen yet. But the idea, that idea of chronic disease seems to make a lot of sense as much as prevention and cure would be. Great. And what criteria should clinicians like yourself use to consider patients for treatment? So in that regard, uh, you know, you really want to characterize a person's condition. So do they have mild cognitive impairment? Do they have dementia? Uh, if they have dementia, are they in the mild stage of that dementia, which is truly based on the the functional changes as well as the severity of the symptoms. Mm -hmm. The approval of this medication was really meant for people with mild cognitive impairment and mild stage dementia. So if you have progressed further, it's probably the risk benefit ratio is probably not in favor of starting the medication. And then of course you have to, beyond knowing what is the syndrome and the stage of it, is it Alzheimer's disease? Because if it's something like vascular disease, well, then that's not going to be appropriate. This is not the medication for that or Lewy body or Parkinson's or something else. So you have to really feel confident in that. And then you have to pursue testing to see if that protein exists in the brain. And even if it does, then it's a really important face-to-face conversation with the patient and family about the risks and the potential benefit, because the risks are quite real mm-hmm. and, and, and those need to be shared. And, and it really does need to be a thoughtful decision on behalf of the patient with, with information provided by the clinician. You touch on our actual next thing, since you yeah. mentioned the risk, let's dive into that. So what would be the side effects of this medication? 
Well, the tomb, the, so there's this term that they're using called ARIA, which is A-R-I-A, and it stands for, it, like all things, it's an acronym, and it stands for Amyloid-Related Imaging Abnormality. Okay. And, and so those, the two things within that umbrella term are going to be swelling that can occur in the brain, edema, or bleeding or hemorrhage, these little micro bleeds within the brain. And this, this happened in a good percentage uh, of individuals. Now you can have these things not actually have symptoms, uh, but if you do have them and you have symptoms, they can be pretty significant. And people would report confusion and headaches and lethargy. And oftentimes they would need to stop the medication and they would get better, but they, but they were not insignificant side effects. Mm -hmm. And certain people may be at higher risk than others, depending on, you know, what the data is showing. Right, right. Wow. Yeah, those seems major if you have bleeding and you have swelling in the brain. And if there isn't something else to address that within the brain, the next step is to actually stop the medication. Um, Yeah, seems pretty wild. But what do you think? How does the benefits outweigh the the risk? Yes, that's the tough one. And I would say it's going to have to be looked at from a case-by-case basis. But if a person truly had no other risk factors and they had likely Alzheimer's disease, they're very early in the course of their disease, and they had mild symptoms, well, and they had this protein in their brain, all these little ands, ands, ands. Right, but if right. you had those and the drug effectively removed it and you didn't have the side effects, mm-hmm. you might notice a slowing, a significant slowing of okay. your symptoms to the point where you would have more time of being incredibly functional and active and um, a good quality of life. Right. There's a lot of ifs in that situation, but it certainly is plausible. And that brings me to the importance of early diagnosis. What would you say about that? Because now we are talking about a drug that has been approved for the treatment and it is meant for people, those that have early in their diagnosis in the initial stages. So uh, talk to us about the importance of early diagnosis. I think it's absolutely critical. And it's something that we have not done as good of a job in as we wished. I do think there's improvements, but there's there's so much stigma and denial about what's happening to people as they're getting older and their brain is changing. The people don't want to get evaluated. We There was a study that came out of the AARP that showed that clinicians have their own bias and they're not pursuing evaluations when they should, because there's, quote, what's the point? And so we have to combat that because we know from prior studies that over 50% of people who have dementia are not diagnosed. Those that are diagnosed, many of them are not even told or fully understand that diagnosis. And all of that leads you know, to, to the stigma and suffering that patients and their families can experience. So we must identify the clinical syndromes of mild cognitive impairment and dementia. And then we have to to do our due diligence in pursuing what is the underlying cause, now for the sake of a potential medication, but arguably just because that's what's right and people should know what's happening to them as they're going through whatever disease course they have. Right, right. Yeah. Gosh, that's such a great point that you're making because like when you think about that 
more than 50% that you mentioned that are not diagnosed because they're in denial or whatever reason that is preventing them from getting to the clinicians and get their diagnosis early on. It's such a huge number considering how devastating this disease can be to not jump into it in the early stage and uh, mitigate in some ways, at least even if it's planning for the future. Exactly. Yeah. How do we know if the drug works and how do you measure like the efficacy of the treatment? Well, that's, I mean, those are great questions. How do we know if the drug works? We're going to need time and people to take the drug and then the instruments or tools that the studies use were questionnaires and surveys based on what the participant was noting as well as their either family member or a close friend. And these are validated tools, meaning they have been studied and they've been shown to be effective at measuring these things. But it's not the same thing, you know, just to, to score an eight out of 30 on some tool is different than a person's experience and the symptoms that they're having. But it is our best way of standardizing across groups of people. And, and so those surveys and tools were used in the research. They're going to be used in the clinic as well. Um, they are already many of them used in a clinic setting. And so that's what's going to have to be done to objectively assess if a person, if their decline is less or if they actually start showing improvement. Great. And, and how would you manage patients' expectation? I would be very careful. So for, for I, I anticipate in, you know, in, in the future, this will be available or this may be available. And I would be very clear about what the potential risks are. So I'd go over the aria and mm-hmm. the side effects. And then I would talk about what it means to slow progression, because it sounds like a double negative. You're mm-hmm. you're reducing decline. And so I, I think graphs are really helpful in this. If you know, if you're going to decline at this rate over a three-year period, mm-hmm. and then being on the medication means it's a slower rate of decline. One, a person needs to understand there's still decline. It hasn't mm-hmm. stopped the progression. You're going to have more symptoms on this drug still, but you're probably going to have less than you would have otherwise. And that's a hard concept for someone to truly grasp as well as live with. And so if if that I think is a really critical step, and then always I feel like you have to complement that with what are you doing? What are you still able to do? We need to leverage that and optimize your, not only your well-being, but your activity and your function to maintain that well-being. Right, right. How long would someone need to go on with this treatment before they can actually, like, before the provider can stop the treatment for whatever reason? That's one of the questions that's still being discussed is when, what is the end date to this therapy? Uh, This clinical trial was 18 months. And so many people believe that you should stick to what the clinical trials were doing because that's the only evidence we have. And any deviation from that is in essence, sort of like a new study that's never been done before. And so uh, many people are arguing that you should do 18 months of therapy and stop. Mm -hmm. Others are suggesting, well, perhaps you change how frequently you're dosing it after 18 months and, and go from there. You know, that will be dependent on Medicare and CMS, insurance companies, but possibly also then the healthcare agencies and and health centers, what they feel comfortable doing. So the answer is unknown right now. Unknown. Okay. 
And now uh, the price tag of the medication. Can you remind me what the price tag is? I believe the initial one came out at $56,000 for one year's worth of just the medication. So that doesn't include the fees for going to the infusion center, the healthcare providers, the scans, the blood tests, uh, any of that. So it's just the medication is $56,000 a year. $56,000 a year. So now that this is not CMS approved yet with Medicare and stuff, and it's out there. So let's talk about accessibility then, because that also means that, okay, so people who have Medicare don't have access to it through that channel. People who have that kind of money pay out of pocket may do. And I'm also wondering if private insurance will pay for it since Medicare isn't paying for it yet. Tell me about how people could access this, you know, without that hefty deep pockets. Yeah, I'll leave it up to you to discuss that. Well, it's it's a it is so complex, and so there are some places where you're able to apply for a special authorization, even through Medicare, with the hope that it would be approved. And that, you know, it depends on your institution. Most places won't do something like that. But I know that that's been discussed in, in, frankly, in publications in the paper. Other places, you know, many private insurance groups have already come out saying they're not going to pay for this or they're not going to cover this. They will not put this on their formulary of regular medications. Mm -hmm. And so that leaves people to out of pocket and Mm -hmm. out of pocket. Really, that alone eliminates so Mm -hmm. many people from access. And so there's a great disparity in getting access to this medication based on the cost alone, but then also regionally, geographically, wherever most of these things are gonna happen in big cities, academic centers, Mm -hmm. uh, where there's infusion centers. And so if you live in the rural parts of a state or where there's just less people, less density, you might not have the same access to someone in an urban area. Right, right. And have have in your practice, have you seen people come to you to want to get this? And I have people come because they want to talk about it. But okay. I think everyone has a sense of hesitation, which I think is healthy, you know. And and so they want to talk and discuss some of those risks. Do I think there are benefits? Do they think there are benefits? No one has come to me personally said, "Well, I expect to be on this medication, make it happen." I have been told of those stories, and even okay. in in Wisconsin. But I think you'll have that everywhere you go. I think more than anything, people just want to understand: is it worth it? What what are the hesitations of healthcare providers or the insurance companies, and then what else is uh, is coming on the pipeline? You know, if it's not this one, what else is out there that people should be looking to? Yeah, well, t- talk to me. The next thing is talk to me about what else out there. <laughs> <laughs> well, right now, I would say it's clinical trials. So it's back to the research world. Um, okay. There are other monoclonal antibodies. So this aducanumab was one, but there are, are two or three other ones that are currently enrolling people into clinical trials, mm-hmm. which may be more effective. It may also have side effects too, but they may be more effective at it, or they may be addressing it earlier in the disease state. And so, uh, you know, there's a lot more control and a lot more safety measures when you're in a research clinical trial. There's just a huge Mm -hmm. team versus just one clinic. And so the AHEAD study is one that's coming out 
Uh, it's a different monoclonal antibody and, and it's all across the country. It's going to be a, a phenomenal study. From a person perspective, the one downside is that you may get a placebo or you may get the drug, but that's how the science has to, has to do it. But that what I would say is down, that's the part of the future. There are other medications besides monoclonal antibodies that are being studied that hopefully people can start enrolling in. And then there are always the lifestyle modification studies, or you don't even need to be in a study that you could just start engaging in as a way of preserving brain function and building brain function. Mm -hmm. um, that's available to all of us. Right, right. So lifestyle changes, living a healthy life and doing some uh, eating healthy and exercising and socializing and all those good stuff. Great. Since this is all new, how do you talk to your patients about what questions to ask their own providers to determine if the treatment is right for them? Well, I start with what we just covered, which was what is happening to me? What is my diagnosis? Do MCI, dementia, what stage? Do you think it's Alzheimer's? Why do you think it's Alzheimer's? And then what are my risks for potentially having side effects if I were to receive this treatment? And so people who have a lot of vascular risks could be excluded depending on what their scans end up showing. Unfortunately, a certain uh, genetic risk factors for the development of Alzheimer's, such as the APOE4 gene, may also be increasing your risk for having those side effects. Right. And so you might need to learn if you have that APOE4 gene risk. Yeah. And if that's true, are you prepared for learning that? Does, you know, what are the implications for you as an individual in learning that? Right. And then also, I think people need to always be in their best shape physically, emotionally, psychologically, before embarking on a big treatment, whether right. that's for cancer or for a rheumatologic lupus kind of treatment or heart mm -hmm. failure, be in your best form. And so are you exercising? Are you sleeping? Are you trying to improve your diet? Are you keeping your brain active? So those are things that I would say to people, we'll get those things in order too, in preparation for a potential drug. Thank you. Thank you. Any concluding thoughts? So I, I, you know, I think regardless of the debate on this medication, it has ushered in a new time in Alzheimer's disease care, therapy, and research. And I think it's important for us to leverage that and say, well, we need to understand our diagnosis. We need to go in for evaluations. We need to be able to advocate for ourselves within healthcare. But then also, there's, let's not forget, there are still things that we should be doing, not only as individuals looking to improve our well-being, but supporting people who are already having a disease or living with cognitive change. And that's addressing stigma. That's bringing people back out into the community to help them, to engage with them, and to, to let them know that they have a place in this community and they still have a lot of meaning. And really takes a system. It takes a community to do that. And this drug doesn't change that. In fact, it just enforces that we need to be doing these things yeah. to reduce disparity and barriers to the medication, but also so that people can still thrive while living with the disease. Right. Yeah, yeah. Great points there. My final question here to you, Dr. Sheen, is what do you do for self-care? 
Mm, yes, I, I love that question. I will tell you, first, I'll tell you the thing I struggle with the most is food. I love eating. I love eating lots of food. And so I'm not as good as I wish I were. So that's something I work on. Okay. But the two things that I that I try to really focus on are physical activity. So I try to run uh, every day in the morning because that's when it, that's the only time I really have that kind of free time and then sleep. I really value yeah. sleep. And I believe in sleep hygiene, and I encourage your listeners to look up sleep hygiene techniques. I try to get, really, I try to get eight hours of sleep. Realistically, though, I accept seven hours of good quality sleep because I feel better. That's one of those immediate responses. I know when I have slept well and I perform better during the day. I'm just happier as a person when I sleep. So those are the two things I continue to do. And then I'm working towards making sure I, I try to eat a little bit better. That's wonderful. Well, thank you so very much for joining me today and enlightening all of our listeners. And I encourage everyone to check out Dementia Matter. It is my go-to podcast to listen to uh, Dr. Chin and all amazing guests you have on that. So thank you for all you do for all of us in the community and in your practice. I appreciate you. Well, thank you, Fatu. Thank you for having me on this great podcast. And uh, I hope to be on in the future when I have more to share. Yeah, of course. You have an open invitation. So <laughs> always you are welcome to be on this podcast. It's truly an honor to have you on. Thank you for tuning in to Super Agent Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this show. If you have any questions, feel free to leave us a comment or Email us at info at superagentpodcast.com or connect with us in any of the social media sites. If you haven't done so already, feel free to subscribe and review the show. Until next time, remember that self-care is self-love. Take good care. <laughs>